Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Good morning. Open your Bibles to Acts 24 and verse 1, and we'll read together. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and, spoke, and a spokesman, one Tertullus, they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had summoned Tertullus, began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disrupt, uh, disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple Without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix Having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Amen? Who's been with us since the beginning of this book? The book of Acts. All right. 
We're kind of on the home stretch now. Just as a brief review, there will be no quiz at the end of the sermon. There's kind of three major sections of Acts. The first section is the first 10 or so chapters. And in that section, the Holy Spirit descends on God's people. And in Jerusalem and in Judea, they preach powerfully. Peter preaches at Pentecost and thousands are added to the number of believers that day. The Spirit of God goes out and the number of God's people grows. And they're primarily Jewish at this point. But then there's a transition into the second part of Acts in which even though the main character is God, the secondary character shifts to Paul. And Paul goes on three missionary journeys, and he travels to places like Thessalonica and Lystra and Berea and Corinth and Ephesus. He goes to places that are not composed entirely of Jews, that are made up primarily of Gentiles, of pagans. And he preaches to people who have never heard of Judaism or know very little about it, haven't heard of the temple, don't know Mosaic law. But these Gentiles, these people who are alien to the Jewish people, they still find their faith in a Jewish Messiah. And the number of God's people grows. And now we're in the third section of Acts. Paul has returned to Jerusalem. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you've seen what happens. He returns to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. His plan is to go to Rome and then on to Spain. But when he goes to the temple and engages in purification rites, some of the Jews who are there accuse Paul of having brought Gentiles into a portion of God's house where Gentiles are not allowed to go, And they riot, and there's a mob, and they drag Paul out of the temple, and they're ready to kill him. And at the last moment, Lysias, a local commander, jumps in and saves Paul. And they grab him, they carry him away from the crowd because it's so dangerous, and they're so violent that Paul's life is in danger. And there's some back and forth, and eventually Paul tells Lysias that he's a Roman citizen, which ultimately results in Paul being sent to Felix. Felix is in the same position that Pilate was in during Jesus' life. He's the ruler, the Roman ruler over the region that Jerusalem is in. He's at Caesarea, not too far from Jerusalem. And Paul is going to stand trial now before Felix. Now, lots of different things happen towards the end of the book of Acts. There's some exciting stuff. Paul gets bit by a snake at the end of Acts. That's exciting. He lives, spoiler alert, he makes it through. He gets on a ship. And he does this like travel narrative through all these different places. He gets shipwrecked. I've never been shipwrecked. Heavy rain is scary to me. I can't imagine being on a ship as it's breaking apart and runs aground. Today, we have what might appear at first glance to be a less exciting scenario. It's a court case. It's like an episode of Law and Order dropped into the end of the book of Acts. It's like Caesarea, first century, the plaintiff Ananias, the defendant Paul. Dun, dun. There we go. Paul's in captivity, and there's a series of captivity narratives that run throughout the book of Acts, and I want us just to see for a moment how they're different. Peter's in prison, and how is Peter released from prison? Who remembers? They're like, oh, there's some different prison things. We're not 100% sure. You're correct. The answer is, that's the answer. An angel appears, there's a bright light, and he leads Peter out of the prison. God miraculously, supernaturally delivers Peter from prison. A little bit later, Paul and Silas, they're in prison together in Philippi. How are they released from prison? What does God do in that captivity narrative? There's an earthquake, right? A natural earthquake? I mean, it knocked the chains off their arms and opened all the gates. I don't think it's a common thing that happens in earthquakes. They're delivered supernaturally in that sense, and they leave the prison. Paul is now in captivity again. 
And there's no miracle that releases Paul, but God still works miraculously and powerfully through Paul's captivity. It's like an important side point. Whether Paul is free or in captivity, God can still do amazing things. Whether you are sick or healthy, God can do amazing things. Whether you are poor or rich, God can do amazing things. It is not what you have, it's who you have. Amen? So we're going to see Paul, or God, do some amazing things through Paul's captivity. And he's in between two major powers here. He's now in Caesarea, and he's in between Ananias and Felix. And Ananias is this powerful guy. He's the high priest. He's the religious leader of the Jews. His power is connected to his heritage, which goes all the way back to Abraham. He's in charge of the temple. And then you have Felix, who's the local Roman governor. His words stand in place for the words of the emperor, who is the emperor over a landmass that covers three million square miles. A religious and a military power are in the room with Paul during this trial. But here's the important thing, and here's, here's the arc, of, I think, this passage. There is not one trial here. There are two trials, just in the 24th chapter of Acts. From the first trial, we learn the importance of Christian character. The importance of Christian character and from the second trial, we learn the supremacy of the Christian gospel. The importance of Christian character and the supremacy of the Christian gospel. Jump back with me a moment to chapter 24, verse 2, and we'll read what Tertullus has to say. He says to Felix, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. This is the opening argument of the person who's leveling accusations against Paul. There's this character that appears, Tertullus. He's absent from the whole rest of Acts. In fact, no other historical source tells us anything about him. He just appears in the narrative for this one purpose and disappears. And what's happened is Ananias and the Jews who want to bring a court case about Paul before Felix, they've lawyered up. They've hired Tertullus, who is an expert in Roman law. Someone who knows how to make the sort of speeches that you need to make before Roman governors. And this week, I read a lot of Roman legal terms. Don't worry, I'm not going to put you through all of that. It is not the most interesting subject. But I do want to offer one term for you. Tertullus begins with an exordium. He begins with a section where his speech is designed to bring honor to the judge that he is before. Do you guys remember reading that section? It's like a little annoying, right? He's like, Felix, you're fantastic. We really, really like you. You're excellent. You brought a lot of peace to the land. Your reforms have been really, really great. Everything we have to say about you is fantastic. We're all really, really big fans. What does that sound like to you? Yeah, yeah <laughs> different sounds. All right, okay, okay. Flattery. 
He's buttering him up. He's getting ready to launch into his accusations. So he begins by talking to him about how great he is. I get emails like this as a professor. Students email me and they're like, hey, listen, your class is so good. We really, really love you as a teacher. Last class was particularly good. Now, about my midterm grade, <laughs> I start the email like, I know how this is going to end. It's like that. So he gets ready. He butters him up. He flatters him. And here's what's so ironic, I think, about this section. Um, it's not just weird flattery. Also, it's completely untrue. The Jews hated Felix. He was really bad at his job. If you read all of the history books that we have that include information about Felix, it is impossible to find anything he did well. He killed a lot of people. He was brutal. He was bad at administrating the state that he was in charge of. He was so bad at it that the Jews later sent him back to Rome. He's deposed. He goes before the emperor Nero. And we think most likely what happened was his brother, Felix's brother, who happened to be at Rome at the time, jumped in, spoke to Nero to prevent Nero from executing Felix for how bad he was at his job. Can you imagine having a job that you could be so bad at, you could get executed? <laughs> He's bad. He's not good at what he does. The flattery is not just annoying, it's empty flattery. You imagine Ananias and the rest of the Jews like trying to focus their eyeballs to keep from rolling <laughs> as Tertullus is offering praise to Felix. And then he jumps into his three accusations, and they should be in your notes. They're simply this, sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege. Sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege. So first, sedition. Tertullus says this, we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. We have found this man a plague, one who stirs up problems throughout everywhere in the world. Everywhere he goes, this guy is a troublemaker. I want us to see that up to this point, all the accusations that have been leveled against Paul by the Jews have been religious. He doesn't take something about their religious tradition seriously. He doesn't care about the Jews. He doesn't act appropriately in the temple. He doesn't engage in certain sacrifices. He's unclean and he spends time among the Gentiles. But when they go before Felix, a Roman governor, their accusation is not primarily a religious one. It's a political one. They are trying to address Felix on terms that are going to hit him in his heart. And it really is a personal one. Judea, the area that he is in charge of, had seen lots and lots of political unrest in the time that Romans had ruled it. Many leaders had failed to appropriately rule this section. You have little groups of guys that get together. Sometimes they're called zealots and sometimes they're called sicarii and they're Jews that want to overthrow Rome or cause political unrest for Rome by acting violently. Felix hears that Paul might be a seditionist, one who's maybe a violent rebel and it becomes personal. And what's more, do you remember Tertullus began with this exordium where he says, Felix, we really like you. Why do we like you? Because you brought peace to our nation. And then he points at Paul and says, that guy is undermining the peace that you brought. He's making it personal. He's making it political. And this charge is serious. A charge of sedition, if Paul were to be found guilty, would absolutely and very quickly result in Paul's execution. Sedition. Secondly, sectarianism. The charge of sectarianism. We read, he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. A ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. This charge sort of is twofold. The first is somewhat religious. He's a religious weirdo. He's this guy that 
doesn't do the sorts of things that we do. He doesn't take our religion seriously. He is an outsider in every sense of the word. He's not a Jew like the rest of us. He's someone that is now alien to us because of his religious beliefs. The second reason why this charge is powerful is because of the word Nazarene. Where do you think we get the word Nazarene? That's right, Nazarian. That's correct. <laughs> it was like, no, it's Nazareth, correct? Correct. It's Nazareth. And who famously came from Nazareth? Jesus. The answer is Jesus. Now, we know a lot about Jesus. We know about his ministry and his death and his resurrection and all that stuff. But Felix is a Roman governor. He may not know a whole lot about Jesus. But if he does know anything about Jesus, here's what he probably does know. He probably knows that Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross, and there was a sign on the cross that said, King of the Jews. Jesus' ministry begins with very, very dangerous and subversive kingdom language. He shows up after John's arrest, and he begins to preach, and he says, Repent for the gospel uh, repent and believe in the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. You can imagine how Romans could hear language like that and think this guy is a problem. And now Tertullus on behalf of Ananias is saying to Felix, this guy is a leader of the group of people who serve or used to serve a man that you crucified because he was a political claimant. A religious charge. He's a weird religious guy. It becomes a political one when it's attached to Jesus, at least to the ears of Felix. So sedition and sectarianism, both of these being primarily political charges, both of which could result in Paul's execution. The third one is sacrilege. He finally says this, he, that is Paul, even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. This final charge is primarily religious, and it's not 100% honest. <laughs> he's gone to the temple, he's profaned it, we grabbed him. It stands primarily as evidence of the first two things. He's a seditionist, he doesn't care about our traditions, so he was willing to profane the temple. These are the three charges that Tertullus levels against Paul before Felix, and then he says, all right, Felix, if you examine Paul, if you ask him questions yourself, if you let him speak, you will find all three of these charges to be true. So Felix nods at Paul, and Paul begins. And we can read this beginning <coughs> in verse 10. Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Nor can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. 
Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial today. So Tertullus levels three charges against Paul, and Paul in turn responds to each of them. Paul also begins with an exordium. Now we remember Tertullus' exordium. He lays it on really, really thick. It's really extravagant. Paul's is not quite as, quite as extravagant. He says, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation. Just think about the comparison between those two things. It's like looking at two reviews of a hamburger, and one is like, it is a culinary achievement. And the second review is, it is a hamburger. <laughs> not willing to get any more specific than that. And as soon as Paul offers his brief and unflattering exordium, he responds to each of the accusations that Tertullus made in order. He responds to sedition this way. He says, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the city or, or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. His response is pretty simple. He says, there's no evidence that I was causing an uproar. I went to the temple. I was doing purification rites. If you've been with us for a while, you remember what happened when Paul goes to the temple. He had an intent to cause unity amongst the people who were in Jerusalem. It was not him that caused the riot or the mob. But part of his defense is this. I've been here 12 days. How long does it take to start a revolt? probably longer than 12 days, right? And some of those days have been in prison and some of those days have been traveling to Caesarea and some of those days have been in captivity here. You think I could show up in just a few days, be a seditionist, cause a revolt? There's no clear evidence that shows that to be the case and it seems very unlikely that I'd be able to show up and do that in just a few days. So to sedition, Paul simply says, no, that's not true. I'm not a seditionist. The second accusation is sectarianism. The second accusation is sectarianism. This one Paul responds to differently. He responds to it in a more complex, more nuanced way. The first accusation is a simple no. The second accusation is a not quite. He says this, But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. This is a different sort of response. They've said Paul is a religious weirdo who doesn't believe the same sorts of things that we believe. He is an outsider. And Paul responds this way. He says, well, they use the word sect and they use the word Nazarenes. None of those words are words that we use for ourselves. And then he says, I believe the same things as they do. I believe in the same God. I believe in the same truths. I have the same scripture. I even believe in the same hope, the hope of the resurrection of the just and the unjust. But there is something that's a little bit different. Paul also believes in Jesus. He has faith in Jesus. What's important to understand is the connection between these two things. A lot of what happens in Acts is the lines of who the people of God are get redrawn and expanded in certain ways. Formerly in the Old Testament, you were a member of the people of God if you were a member of the people of Israel, if you were Jewish. And on some occasions, if you had added yourself to that group as an outsider. 
But that's not what happens anymore. What happens is the gospel goes out, and Jews are expecting the gospel is going to go out to Jews. But it doesn't just do that. It goes to Ephesians, and it goes to Thessalonians, and it goes to Corinthians. And these people who aren't Jewish suddenly find their faith in a Jewish Messiah, and the whole church, both Jews and Gentiles, are left reckoning with that fact. Paul is saying not that he has changed religions. He's saying, I now understand my own religion more fully. And we've seen Luke cover this sort of material already. If you go back to his first volume, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus dies and he's raised from the dead and he appears to his disciples in disguise and his disciples, like they normally do, are arguing with each other and trying to like beat each other in arguments. And Jesus begins to talk about who the Messiah is. And he says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Paul doesn't believe that he's a religious outsider. He believes that he now sees what all his scripture has already been telling him more fully. He believes that salvation is no longer a matter of race, it's a matter of grace. So to sedition, he says, no. To sectarianism, he says, not quite. And then to sacrilege. We read this here. He says, now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings while I was doing this. They found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia. They ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else at least men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Paul responds to the last accusation with a bit of a technicality. Now we know as we've read the book of Acts that Paul actually didn't do anything wrong. When he goes to the temple, he doesn't incite a mob. Other people incite a mob. When they describe what happened in the temple, it's not really accurate. Paul went to do a good thing, and he gets dragged out of the temple. But the way he responds is really simple. He says, the people who made this accusation, these Jews from Asia Minor, they aren't even here. My accusers aren't present. If they have something to say, they should say it to my face. Beyond that, Roman law required that accusers were present for any accusations that they leveled in the court where those accusations were judged. So it's simple. Paul's like, they're not here. Charges have to be dropped. Now, I want us to just like, pause for a moment. Paul remains in custody here. He's not released, nor is he declared guilty. And I, just, I, I don't think this passage for us is about Christian courtroom strategy. It's not about that. If you're about to go to court... Don't read Acts 24 to understand how to behave in court. That's not what it's designed to do. I want us to see something else that's really important. Paul's defense here, Paul's defense, it is not how intelligent he is or how good of a communicator he is. It's not how clever he is. It's not how well he can navigate the court system. Paul's defense is that he is innocent. He is actually innocent of the accusations that have been leveled against him. He actually doesn't or hasn't done the things that they say he is doing. Can you imagine if he actually was guilty? If he believed in Jesus, if he believed in the gospel, but when he got back to Jerusalem, he's like, I'm gonna profane the temple today. He wouldn't stand well in court. The point is this. 
Christian character is important. Do you guys agree with that? Christian character is important. So many times as a church, we struggle to powerfully proclaim the gospel because we have not lived it well publicly. I'm sure many of you have come up against this. When you've tried to share the gospel with your neighbors or your friends or your family, and you get responses like, well, Christians are hypocrites or Christians don't do good things. In fact, most people that I talk to who have left the church, they haven't left because they disagree with our theology. They left because they feel like they were mistreated. Now, sometimes that's not true, but sometimes it is. New hearts, the ones we are given when we are saved, necessarily, absolutely, without exception, lead to new life. New hearts lead to new life. Paul is on the Damascus road. He's on his way to Damascus to find Christians to deal with them there. And who does he meet? That was kind of a home run for you guys. Let's try that again. And who does he meet? Jesus. And here's not what happens. Jesus doesn't show up and say, Paul, you're industrious, you're really intelligent, really smart, you're really educated. I want to take all those skills, I just want to like slightly point them in a different direction. That's not what he does. He shows up and he gives Paul a new heart. And this new heart, it led to new life. And as Paul lived that new life, whatever righteousness that he carried out was also the result of God's work in his life. When we read Paul's letters to other people, we see him say things like this in 1 Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, that means make you more holy, completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying not only did God save you, but the process of becoming more righteous is the work of God himself. This is so important for us to understand. There's this story that gets told all the time in like popular Christian culture. And if you've told this story, I'm going to be hard on it for a second. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just bear with me. You know the story. It's a, like you're, there's like a beach and there's two sets of footprints. Do you guys know where I'm going? It's like written in greeting cards. You read it online. Your mom sent it to you in an email, right? And, um, and you're like, oh, it's, it's me and Jesus walking. And then sometimes there's just one set of footprints. You're like, Jesus, why is there one set of footprints? And Jesus says, those were the times that I carried you. And you're like, oh, man. There was only ever just one set of footprints. Jesus carried you the whole way. Every act of righteousness, every moral reform, every good act, every amount of generosity is the work of God. That's important for us to understand. And it's what I believe leads us to the more important trial. In the first trial, Paul is the defendant. We now move to a second trial, one where we learn the supremacy of the Christian gospel. You can jump to verse 24. I believe it's printed right there in your notes, and we can read this. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. We'll stop there. This is an insane sideways turn in the passage. I want to try and help explain why it seems so insane. I have not yet been on trial for a serious crime. <laughs> I hope I never am. But some of you have and some of you might be. And imagine for a second, you've been on trial for a serious, violent crime. And at the end of the trial, the judge is like, guilty, not guilty, I'm not sure. 
And then later that night, you get a text from the judge. It's like, dinner later? You remember me on the judge, white robes, intense demeanor, little gavel? Paul stands before the Roman judge for a crime that could result in his execution. There's not anything determined about whether or not he's innocent according to that judge. And later the judge invites him to a dinner party with him and his wife. It's Paul, it's Felix, it's Drusilla. Ananias is not there. Tertullus is not there. Nobody else is there. It's just these three people together. And Paul's kind of a hustler, right? He's got plans. He wants to go to Rome. He wants to go to Spain. He's a man of industry. Although we believe he's a faithful believer and trusts in God, he works hard. And you might expect Paul, if he were a total pragmatician, if that's even a word, to say to Felix, all right, it's just us. Here's the money. Let me go. I've got plans. I've got great things I want to do for God. Or maybe he could like win Felix's heart. No one's there. He's like, all right, Felix, Ananias isn't here. Tertullus isn't here. Let's hang out. Let's have dinner. I'm going to win you over and you're going to release me. Paul gets this moment with Felix, who's the ruler of the region of Judea. And he doesn't waste it. He doesn't waste it. He talks about faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he cares more about Felix being released from sin than himself being released from chains. He doesn't waste it. He doesn't waste it. I think back to times where I wasted opportunities to spread the gospel, to tell someone about Jesus. Paul, by all earthly accounts, it is not in his self-interest to do this here, but he does it. He talks about three concepts. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. And then Felix gets disturbed and send Paul, sends Paul away. There's a reason for that. Luke does not include this in the book of Acts because it was so famous at the time of its writing, he didn't need to. Felix brings his wife, Drusilla, and there's some interesting information about them. Drusilla is Herod's daughter. You've heard of Herod? Drusilla is one of the Herod's daughters, and she was originally married to someone else who had converted to Judaism. And Felix comes into town. He's consumed with passion for Drusilla. He hires a sorcerer to seduce Drusilla away from her husband. She divorces her husband, comes and marries Felix. It's a scandal. It's a scandal. If there was like first century TMZ, they would be all over it. Everyone knew about it. They knew what had, been hap- what had happened. They had received a lot of private and pu- public criticism. They were in this weird spot where they had done something bad and everyone knew about it. Have you ever been in a room with someone who's just made a really, really bad mistake and you're like, don't mention it, don't mention it, don't mention it, right? Paul's not afraid. He brings up three concepts. Righteousness, which Felix and Drusilla have not expressed in their lives. Self-control, which Felix and Drusilla have not expressed in their lives. And coming judgment, a judgment they should be afraid of. He is not afraid. Now contrast these two scenes, these two trials. In the first trial, in the first trial, Paul is the defendant and Felix is the judge. In the second trial, Felix is the defendant and God is the judge. Paul's saying, here we are in this room, we're having dinner together. You think the difficult time has passed, the courtroom is already passed, judgment is not dealt with here, but it is. Paul does not shy away from the fact that Felix is in need of his own advocate. The only advocate that would enable Felix to escape the coming judgment. 
Felix becomes afraid, and tragically, he sends Paul away. And when he does call again for Paul, it doesn't seem to be to talk about anything that Paul had to say. It's to earn a money, to get some money from him, a bribe. Here's the thing. I think when we read the Bible, we have a strong and nearly insurmountable tendency to want to compare ourselves to its heroes. We read this section of Paul, and there's all these things stacked up against Paul. Felix and Ananias and, and the Jews and, and the Roman Empire. And we ask this question, if I were on trial, would I be as brave as Paul? Would I be as clever as Paul? Would I be as faithful as Paul? Would I be as smart as Paul? As good a communicator as Paul? Stop reading the Bible that way. When we read the Bible, we are not Paul. We are Felix. We are not David, we are Saul. We are not Abel, we are Cain. We begin, we begin dead. Without potential. Completely unable to save ourselves. In need of something. I, on a regular basis, interact with people who are former moralists. People who have left various churches. I feel like I talk to them all the time. I'm one of the guys that grew up in the church and stayed in the church, but I end up talking to people who grew up in the church and they left the church. And I ask them, why did you leave the church? Why did you leave? And they say, well, you know, in church I heard, um, like, got to pray a lot and I need to read my Bible and go to church on Sundays and I got to not do things. I got to not have sex before marriage and not do drugs and not lie and, and cheat and, and not be consumed by a desire to earn money. And I just, like, I didn't want that sort of life, so I, I left it and I kind of forged my own way I can be a good person somewhere else. And I'm like, I, I agree that you shouldn't do certain things and you should do other things, but I think it is a tragedy that all you ever heard was be like Paul and no one ever told you that you were a Felix. Moralism, the idea that Christianity is about what we can do or what we have done is a toxic poison in the church. It kills people. It dooms them to either pride or complete inability to cope with the fact that they cannot be good. Christianity is a unique religion in that it says this, it is not about what you can do or what you have done. It's not about how faithful you can be or how good you can be. It's not about your righteousness or your merit. It is about the merit and the righteousness of the one who has lived and died in your place. That is what Christianity is about. So Paul gets in this room with Felix, the second trial, and he holds up high the name of Jesus, the supremacy of the good news that he has for Felix, and he says to him, there is coming judgment. There's coming judgment. And the same question that Paul implicitly has for Felix, I have for you. On that day, when you stand before the only true, righteous, powerful judge, will you speak for yourself or will you have Jesus speak for you? There's only one way to salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what it is that you've achieved with your son of the cross. We thank you for the power that we have now. We thank you for the righteousness 
that we have because of what your son has done. I pray that as a body of believers, we would be drenched and submerged in the truth of the gospel message and not the secular philosophy of moral achievement. That we were reminded on a, re- on a regular daily basis that it was you that was good in our place. If I could have everyone just keep their heads bowed for a moment. Um, I don't believe that raising your hand uh, is what saves you, but I do believe raising your hand can be an acknowledgement that you've come to terms with the fact that you've realized that you, whether you've been in the church for years or have never attended before and showed up today, have attempted to just do good things and be saved that way. Moralism is so prevalent. So if in some way you've been convicted by the power of the Spirit and realized that you did not yet have an advocate, just while everyone else's head is bowed, raise your hand and we'll pray together. I see that hand. I see those hands. I see that hand in the back. See that hand? Any more? All right, pray this with me. Father, thank you for what your son achieved at the cross. I was dead, unable, unable to be acceptable. But through the death of your son, I can now find acceptance. I repent of my sin, and I turn to you. And in the name of that son, Jesus, amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.